recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, May 2nd, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present the sixth part of a six-part essay which I wrote perhaps um, ten years ago entitled Classical Records and German Origins, Part 6, of course. This segment was, in what was originally subtitled, Who are the English? And because it is a, um, an important part of the premise of this essay, which was a, um, a refutation to some of the ideas of British Israel, this part of this series, we are going to extend the subtitle tonight and add the words or, or the statement, who are the Huns? We, um, we hope one day this summer, because I've rewritten all of them for these presentations, and they really do have to be edited one more time. We hope to publish these um, updated essays at christiania.org one day this summer. I, I'm better off when I do my own editing to put, my, to put some space between the, the writing time and the editing time, because the more time elapses, the easier I could spot mistakes. That, that's, I think when you first write something, you're, you're sort of emotionally attached to it, and you don't see the typos or, or the bad grammar. And, and months down the road, it's easier to spot those things. While it has been the purpose of this series of essays to demonstrate that the Germanic peoples indeed descended from the Scythians of Asia, who were also called Chimerians and Sakans, as well as many other names for subdivisions and various tribes, and that they, in turn, had descended from the peoples of the Bible, notably those Israelites who had been deported by the Assyrians. And here in this installment, a short digression shall be made. Quite unfortunately, in the prelude to events in more recent history, and I'm talking especially about the world wars, certain propagandists among the English people succeeded in labeling the Germans as Huns, or claiming that the Germans are descended from the ancient Assyrians, and in convincing the masses that the English themselves are a people of distinct origin. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth. And here we shall digress in order to discuss the origins of the English and Anglo-German kinship, and as a matter of necessity, we shall also talk at length about the identity of the Huns. It's um, when I first found Christian identity, I had already, um, fr from reading earlier in my life, I had already had a good grip on the relationships between various of, of, of the European peoples. And 
I was really appalled by the idea that the English would label the Germans Hans, just like the English like to label the Irish as Canaanites, which is absolutely false and, and quite ridiculous. And, and, and the, um, the realization came to me that the English did that as a way to justify their oppression of kindred types of their own European neighbors, neighbors in blood and proximity. And the English oppressed their own neighbors for, for, for several centuries in the case of the Irish. And even though the Germans had helped the English with Napoleon, they were repaid by England with their own destruction in the two world wars. British Israel was very, very big in England, especially among the academic class, the learned classes, the noble classes, in the late 19th and, and early 20th centuries. Famous Britons, like famous Englishmen, I should probably say, like Rudyard Kipling, and even the court, members of the court of Queen Victoria, and possibly the Queen herself, were either subscribing to or well aware of British Israel beliefs. And it was from within British Israel and, and certain infiltrators of the banking class within British Israel who started to propagate the ideas that the Germans were Huns, that the Germans were Assyrians, in order to justify... English wars against the Germans. There's no doubt it was all political, but it has persisted in certain, well, all throughout British Israel circles, which extend to Canada and Australia, although their numbers are not big, and, and even though they're more or less an, an old man's drinking club, tea drinking, not beer, because they're not real men, over in Britain, while their numbers are not big, certain of their membership are still um, old money, influential type people, and, and, and they still spread this propaganda in their literature and on the Internet. The um, Worldwide Church of God had picked up this idea, and to this day, some branches of um, Herbert Armstrong's former organization still propagate the same lies, that the Germans are Huns, that the Germans are Assyrians. And I've seen this myself in some of their own paper literature. It, it's, it's sad because it's a lie, because the English are indeed guilty. And I'm almost half English by blood myself. The English are indeed guilty of the destruction of their own German on, on one side and Irish on the other side of their own German and Irish brethren. The English are a close kin to the Germans, and the British are, of course, close kin to the Irish, as well as the Scots. The pre-Roman inhabitants of Britain, while they are not the topic of this discussion, shall be mentioned here only briefly. In the Encyclopedia of World History, in the 6th edition, Houghton Mifflin Company, on page 180, we find, and I quote, the prehistoric inhabitants of Britain, called Celts on the basis of their language, were apparently a fusion of Mediterranean, Alpine, 
and Nordic strains that included a dark Iberian and a light-haired stock. Archaeological evidence points to contacts with the Iberian Peninsula and Egypt. The true Celts are represented by two stocks, Gales surviving in Northern Ireland and High Scotland, and Kimry and Bretons still represented in Wales. The Bretons were close kin to the Gauls, particularly the Belgi. First note that from the Belgi, we had the modern name Belgium. And I'm finished with the quote. Belgi was the last word. First note that the Belgi, we, from the Belgi, we had the modern name Belgium. And that the Kimri, distinguished from the Bretons, have a name identical to the Cimmerians, which cannot be overlooked. Both of those tribes occupied both shores of the channel. Yet much of the information provided here appears to have come from the Roman analyst, Tacitus. In his Agricola, which was actually a little book written about his father-in-law, whose name was Agricola, who was the Roman governor of Britain. In paragraph 11, Tacitus wrote, who the first inhabitants of Britain were, whether natives or immigrants, is open to question. One must remember that we are dealing with barbarians. But their physical characteristics vary, and the variation is suggestive. The reddish hair and large limbs of the Caledonians proclaim a German origin. The swarthy faces of the Solores, the tendency of their hair to curl, and the fact that Spain lies opposite, all lead one to believe that Spaniards crossed in ancient times and occupied that part of the country. The peoples nearest to the Gauls likewise resemble them. Of course, Tacitus was not properly a historian, for he was not educated in the classical histories, and he was apparently ignorant of, or perhaps simply ignored, the accounts of both the Phoenicians and Trojans in Britain, although it is not probable that all of the early Bretons are derived from these alone. Rather, and, I, and I'm certain there were many Gepetite tribes in early Britain. Rather, Tacitus was a chronicler of his own times, and both the Agricola and his account of the tribes of Germany, the Germania, had been esteemed as works of great value for many centuries. Furthermore, swarthy does not necessarily mean non-white, but rather a brunette or a ruddy skin color relative to whites, relative within the white race. As we shall later see, Procopius make the same distinction of people that are clearly white. There are many whites of Europe with hair that tends to curl. Some of those people are even blonde with blue eyes. And many of them are as white as any other Europeans. When I originally wrote this essay, I included that those particular paragraphs to set forth right from the start the fact that the British people are a composite of many of the different tribes of Europe. They aren't a distinct people, even though many people of British Israel would attempt to make that claim, would attempt to um, put up that facade. It's simply not true at all. The Greek geographer Strabo 
who lived a few generations before Tacitus, gave his own description of the German tribes, as they were known to him, although he did not have nearly as much information as the Roman Tacitus had, who wrote almost a century later. Yet Strabo apparently described many German tribes very accurately, since Tacitus's later account is very much in agreement with the geographer, albeit it is much more detailed. While Strabo's account of the Germans won't be discussed here at length, one statement is important to our discussion, where he says, now, as for the tribe of the Suevi, or Suebi, from which we get the later German name for Swabia, it is the largest, for it extends from the Rhine to the Elbe, and a part of them even dwell on the far side of the Albus, meaning the Elbe. That's in Strabo's Geography, Book 7, Chapter 1. In the same paragraph, Strabo lists among the tribes of the Suebi, the Coldi, the Quadi, the Marcomanni, who both inhabited Bohemia, and the Langobardi, or as we know them, the Lombards, who some centuries later left Germany and came to inhabit northern Italy, and also several other tribes mentioned by Tacitus. The name of the Suebi existed until recent times in the name Swabia, which was a large duchy in southwest Germany, which included parts of modern-day France and Switzerland, and most of what we know as the modern German state of Baden-Württemberg. Tacitus, throughout the Germania, refers to the Baltic Ocean as the Swedian Sea. He begins his description of the Swedi, found at paragraphs 38 through 46 of the Germania, thusly, and I quote, we must now speak of the Swedi, who do not, like the Cadi or the Tencteri, constitute a single nation. They occupy more than half of Germany and are divided into a number of separate tribes under different names, though all are called by the generic name of Swedi. In his ensuing description of these tribes, Tacitus makes a special mention of the Semnones and the Langobardi, whom he notes for their bravery. And then he says, after them come the Rudigni, the Aviones, the Angli, the Varini, the Eudosis, the Suarines, and the Nuitones, all of them safe behind ramparts of rivers and woods in northern Germany. There is nothing noteworthy, he says, about these tribes individually. Tacitus then goes on to list the rest of the tribes, the rest of the tribes of Suebia, the Hermandori, the Neristi, the Marcomanni, the Quadi, the Marsigni, and the Buri, who, he says, are exactly like the Suebi in language and mode of life, referring to the Marsigni and the Buri. The Lugi, who are divided into a number of smaller units, the Gathones, or the Goths, whose rule, he says, is somewhat more autocratic than in 
other German states. The Rugi and the Limovi, both, he says, bordering on the Swabian Sea, meaning the Baltic Ocean. The Suiones, from which we get the name Sweden. The Suiones lived, he said, right out in the sea, which could mean on the extreme coasts and islets off the German coast in the Baltic. The Ahisti, and finally, the Sitones, and of the Ahisti, where we see the name of the modern Estonians. Tacitus says that they had the same customs and fashions as the Swebi, but a language more like the British, and that they are the only people who collect amber. Glacium is their own word for it. So we see the English word glass in that word glacium. And we also see that these Ahisti are certainly the Scythians of the Amber District along the Baltic, mentioned earlier by Diodorus Siculus and much earlier by Herodotus, as well as other writers. Now, beyond these, Tacitus attests to the presence of the Pusini, who were also called Bastarne, who lived nearest the Black Sea, off the Danube River, the Veneti, who are the Slavic Wends, and the Feni, who are the Finns, all of whom he was not sure whether to class as Germans or as Sarmatians or Slavs. As we have seen in the first five parts of this essay, all of these Germans are the very same peoples whom the earlier Greeks called Chimerians. And then later, they called them Scythians, or Sakans, or Sake. And then even later, they called them Galatahi, while the Romans called them all Gauls. And the Romans later divided them into Gauls and Germans. While it is absent from Tacitus, we shall see that the term Sakans persisted, as Bede and other later writers called these same people by the general name of Saxons. Certainly the same people whom Tacitus and Strabo had labeled as Swebi. Here it must also be noticed that in the account of the Swebi given by Tacitus, the Angli, or Angles, this is in maybe 98 to 104 AD, in that period, the Angli, or Angles, are only a minor tribe among the rest of the Germanic tribes and are certainly considered to be Germans and being labeled as Swebi, or Swabians. They are indeed closely related to the other tribes of the German interior. The strength of Rome checked Germanic expansion into the lands of the empire for as long as such strength endured. And Tacitus records the various Germanic tribes who lived along the Rhine and the Danube, which of those were friendly to Rome and which had already crossed west of the Rhine by his time, as he distinguishes Germans from Gauls, and he doubts 
The Germanic origin of some of the tribes of Gaul, which Gaul is roughly equivalent to the lands of modern France, Belgium, and the Netherlands, and the portion of modern Germany which is west of the Rhine. He refutes the alleged Germanic origin of some of the tribes of Gaul, even when they claimed such an origin for themselves. And we saw and discredited his refutation in the earlier segments of this portion of, of this series. Yet from the time that Julius Caesar had conquered Gaul, for over 300 years until the 3rd century AD, the Germanic tribes were for the most part held at the frontiers of the empire. Not that there was ever any peace, because Rome conducted campaigns in Germany many times, and many times the German tribes raided parts of the empire. From the 3rd century AD, however, the Germanic tribes were too strong for the empire to contain. And I believe it was the emperor Car Caracalla who first um, had to bribe Germanic tribes with money in order to get them to stop invading, which didn't last long. The Germanic tribes themselves were also already being pressured from the east. Rome had already begun an, an internal decline from the peak of its strength. And so the empire began to lose the more distant provinces first those provinces like Dacia and Pannonia. And by the 5th century, Rome was overrun by Goths, Vandals, Alans, Alemanni, Burgundians, Franks, Saxons, Suebi, and Huns. The Goths are Tacitus's Gatones, whom he counted among the Suebi. The Vandals are Tacitus's Vandili, who were also mentioned by Strabo, as Vindelici in books four and book four, chapters three and six of his geography. The Alans are called by the sixth century Greek historian Procopius a Gothic nation several times in books three and five of his history. And Procopius also said that the Alans were allies of those Vandals with whom they invaded Spain. Now, Josephus mentions the Alans explicitly in his Wars of the Judeans, and he relates the Alans directly to the Judeans. The, the Alamani and the Burgundians are mentioned by Procopius, along with the Suebi and other German tribes in Book 5, Chapter 12 of his histories. And this is important to note because Procopius is writing at the time of Justinian in the 6th century AD. Procopius, as we shall see, is very familiar with the Huns. And all of this ancient history, what it does is it proves by far that the Germans are not Huns. The terms Frank and Saxon do not describe any single German tribe, but rather 
they generally describe particular groups of tribes. As Tacitus had also used the term Swebi, Procopius mentions the Germans who are now called Franks. And he mentions them quite often. One place is book three of his History to Wars in chapter three. Ostensibly, the term had described free Germans. The word Frank is free in German. It's related to a word that means free. The term described free Germans as opposed to those Germanic tribes which had fallen under Roman dominion. It is evident from Bede and others that many tribes which Tacitus called Swebi were indeed Saxons, which is a term that Tacitus, for one reason or another, did not use. Bede counts the Angles as Saxons, and frequently, throughout his ecclesiastical history, the first place, I believe, is uh, Book 1, Chapter 15, Bede calls the Angles Angles or Saxons. Many of the Goths, Alans, Vandals, and others who invaded the empire were already Christians, although they were of the Aryan sect of Christianity. And Procopius often relates that. And being of the Aryan sect of Christianity, they must have received their Christianity from the East and not from the Greeks or Romans. The Greeks and the Romans were adverse to Arianism. They, they, they were, were um, hostile to Arian Christianity, to the Arian heresy. The original version of this essay promised another segment, a part seven. I don't know if that's ever going to happen, Part seven would show that the Huns did indeed descend from the same Scythian stock from which the other Germanic tribes had come. That's the way it was originally planned. Except that the Huns had ventured further east than most of the others and had come into Europe relatively later than the others. Due to events beyond our control, when these essays were first published, the final portion, part seven, was never written. So here we shall offer a shorter but a quite full from the works of Procopius from that viewpoint discussion of the Huns. The Huns were identified in many instances in Procopius's history of the wars, meaning the wars of Justinian between the Germanic tribes and the Persians. The Huns were identified in many instances in Procopius's history as Massagete. And we see that saga word referring to the Sakans or the Sake in the name Massagete, just like we see it in so many other names related to the Sake or Saxons. According to Herodotus, the Scythians for whom Cyrus had crossed the Araxes River in northern Media with aims to conquer were also Massagetae, 
a thousand years before Procopius. Jordanes, the Gothic historian, who lived and wrote perhaps about a hundred years after Procopius, he claims that his very own Goths were descended from those same Scythians as well, the Scythians whom Cyrus, the king of Persia, tried to conquer in the 5th century B.C. I'm sorry, in the 6th century B.C. So we have competing claims to who the Masigetae are. One from Herodotus claiming, well, well, one from Procopius claiming the Huns are descended from those Masigetae, those Scythians that fought with Cyrus. And the competing claim from Jordanes, who claims that his tribe, the Goths, were descended from the Scythians, from the Masigetae who fought with Cyrus. Now, Jordanes hated the Huns and drew a very ugly picture of them. However, Jordanes, being of the Gothic nation, which had long been subjected as tributaries to the Huns, was quite biased. Procopius, a hundred years before Jordanus, was a Byzantine historian who had no apparent bias against the Goths or the Huns. The only way to reconcile the statements and the propaganda of Jordanus with the eyewitness testimony of Procopius concerning the Huns and Procopius was closely familiar with the Huns, is to understand, first, that the Masagetae and the Goths descended as separate branches of those same Scythians. So they both had a claim to be those Scythians whom Cyrus fought with. Both claims were legitimate, but that they had very different histories after they had each gone their separate ways. From the time of Alexander the Great, the Greeks maintained strings of forts along trade routes through, through, through the Near East all the way to India. And from there, they had engaged in trade as far as China. Western control of these trade routes, however, was interrupted with the rise of the Parthians. But the trade and growing knowledge of the East did not cease as in earlier portions of this, of this series we have seen Strabo attest that Greek knowledge of the East actually grew through their association and interaction with the Parthians. The Nasigete, along with other branches of the Sacdae, while having humble beginnings along the Araxis River in northern Media, quickly became large and powerful nations in Central Asia, north of India. And we have also already presented testimony of that here in these essays from Diodorus Siculus, for instance. Eventually, the Masagete split up into diverse branches. Some of them took to raiding the trade routes and China to the south and east. And there, they became known as the Huns. That's where they get their reputation 
for being short and yellow because they intermingled with those people. Archaeology proves that beyond doubt. From that time, though, through the Byzantine Greeks and evidently, by the way, the Parthians, the name Hun seems to have been applied to all of the Macedonians. The Huns of the East, intermarrying with Chinese and other yellow Asians, became a mixed race, or perhaps mixed races. And the Huns of the West were the first to enter Europe, the first Huns to enter Europe. It seems that these Huns were later unjustly slandered with the descriptions of the Huns of the East. Procopius was not only a thorough historian, but he also served as the personal secretary to Belisarius. Belisarius was the greatest of the Byzantine Greek generals of the time of the Emperor Justinian. And Procopius was also a notable man by himself and a, and a member of Justinian's court. In his capacity as secretary to Belisarius, he accompanied the general on his notable campaigns in Persia, in Italy, and in Africa. Belisarius's armies had employed many Hunnish mercenaries, and Procopius was familiar with them. In many places throughout his history, Procopius either used the words for Hun and Masagete interchangeably, or he wrote phrases such as the Masagete, who are now called Huns. And those descriptions are throughout his history. He described at least some of the Huns dwelling in Central Asia as having, quote-unquote, white bodies. And in fact, he said that the Huns of Central Asia were the only Huns with white bodies. We shall see that that doesn't discount the Huns of Europe from being white. But even more importantly, because this gives us a good idea into the racial characteristics of the Huns in the mind of Procopius. Even more importantly, Procopius confused the ancient Chimerians and the Scythians in general as Huns. In Book 8, Chapter 5 of his history, Procopius wrote, In ancient times, a vast throng of the Huns, who were then called Chimerians, ranged over this region which I have just mentioned in reference to the Crimea. So we know from many Roman descriptions that the Chimerians were tall and fair and definitely white Germanic. So if Procopius can imagine Chimerians, whom he must have been familiar with from the history books as Huns, the Huns must have fit the same description as the Chimerians. Then Procopius proceeds to describe how certain Huns 
and the tribe of the Goths had inhabited that same region in his time, meaning the Crimea. In Book 3, Chapter 4 of his history, Procopius is describing events surrounding a Roman senator named Maximus, who died while contending to be the emperor in 388 AD. Maximus was actually the Roman governor of Gaul and, I believe, Britain. In relation to this, Procopius mentions the famous Attila, Attila the Hun, where he wrote that Maximus, accordingly, had become exceedingly aggrieved at that which had come to pass, and straightway entered into a conspiracy against the emperor. But when he saw that Ahedius was exceedingly powerful, for he had recently conquered Attila, who had invaded the Roman domain with the great army of Massagete and the other Scythians. So Procopius believed that <laughs> Attila the Hun and the Massagete were Scythians and that there were other Scythians. Of course, there were um, other tribes that often fought alongside the Huns, and we'll see a little of that in the subsequent paragraphs here. For he had recently conquered Attila, who had invaded the Roman domain with the great army of Massagete and the other Scythians. The thought occurred to him that Ahidius would be in the way of his undertaking. And of course, Ahidius was because Maximus died trying to overthrow the emperor. Later, in his Anecdota, which is also called the secret history. Procopius describes the continuing invasions of Roman territory in Central Europe, meaning Thrace, Pannonia, and Dacia, by the Huns and other tribes, which were their neighbors. In chapter 18 of his secret history, he states, and Illyricum, and Thrace in its entirety, comprising the whole expanse of the country from the Ionian Gulf to the outskirts of Byzantium, including Greece and the Thracian Chersonese, was overrun practically every year by Huns, Sclavini, and Ante from the time when Justinian, who was an Illyrian by race, took over the Roman Empire. And they wrought, meaning the Byzantine Empire, they called themselves the Romans. And they wrought frightful havoc among the inhabitants of that region. For in each invasion, more than 20 myriads of Romans, I think, were destroyed or enslaved there so that a veritable Scythian wilderness came to exist everywhere in this land. Then, in chapter 23 of the same book, he wrote of Justinian, while describing his oppressive taxation. Furthermore, though the Medes and the Saracens had plundered the greater part 
the land of Asia, and the Huns, and Sclavini, and Ante, the whole of Europe, and some of the cities had been leveled to the ground, and others had been stripped of their wealth in very fashion through levied contributions. And though they had enslaved the population with all their property, making each region destitute of inhabitants by their daily inroads, yet he remitted the tax to no man, with the single exception that captured cities had one year's exemption only. In other words, Justinian didn't give anybody a tax break even though these people were being severely impressed every single year by the Huns, taken hostage, killed, their cities leveled, their women bootied, and so on. So we see that the Huns not only invaded Italy and nearly destroyed Rome itself in the later part of the 4th century AD, but that they had been around for all of the time after that. They didn't just disappear in 388. They've been around for all of the time after that, pillaging cities and destroying Roman armies all the way down to the time of Justinian, who became the emperor only a few short decades after the fall of the Western Empire. I think Justinian became the empire, if, uh, emperor, I believe, in 528 AD. I might be off a year or two. And Rome fell in 476 AD is the generally accepted date for the final fall of the West. So it's only 50 years. The Huns were there all that time. We may hear more in relation to the fall of Rome about the Goths and the Vandals and the Alans and those other peoples. But the Huns were there doing their part in destroying Rome all that time. The Huns certainly need the criteria outlined by which Yahweh said Rome would fall in Daniel chapter 2. With this, we should be aware that Huns are to be credited in part with the fall of the Western Roman Empire having deprived it of valuable provinces and many armies, and therefore weakening it greatly, it more readily succumbed to the other Germanic tribes. Describing these um, tribes that were engaged in this warfare with the Huns and this looting and rampage and pillaging with the Huns, describing the Ante and the Sclavini, where the similarity with the word Slav has not escaped us. Describing the Ante and the Sclavini, while not stating it explicitly, Justinian didn't call them, uh, I'm sorry, Procopius didn't call them Huns explicitly. But he reveals that he does indeed, or he did indeed, esteem them as Huns. He did that where he wrote in Book 7, Chapter 15 of his history of these people. And both the two peoples have also the same language, 
an utterly barbarous tongue. Nay, further, they do not differ at all from one another in their appearance, for they are all exceptionally tall and stalwart men, while their bodies and hair are neither very fair nor very blonde, nor do they incline entirely to the dark type, but they are all slightly ruddy in color. And they have a hard life, giving no heed to bodily comforts, just as the Massagete do. And like them, they are continually and at all times covered with filth. However, they are in no respect base or evildoers, but they preserve the Hunnic character in all its simplicity. In fact, the Sclavini and Ante actually had a single name in the remote past, for they were both called Spori in olden times. Because, I suppose, living apart one man from another, they inhabit their country in a sporadic fashion. It sounds like they were a pretty pastoral people to me. And in consequence of this very fact, they hold a great amount of land for they alone inhabit the greatest part of the northern bank of the Ister. So much, then, may be said regarding these peoples. It is doubtful that Procopius could have said that these peoples, who were always seen in his history in company with the Huns, preserved the Hunnic character if he did not consider them to be related to the Huns. And by this we also see that while they evidently had poor hygiene, they were certainly white people of good character. They had ruddy complexions. Here Procopius further reveals his consideration that the Huns were indeed of good character. With this we can put into perspective his statement about the white Huns of Central Asia, as he called them. As we we see that he that that alone does not exclude other Huns from being white, but only that they were not so white, but had ruddy complexions instead. The Greeks, who were blonde and fair, marveled at how white the Persian complexions were. When you look at Procopius's description of the white Huns of Central Asia, he says that they are a settled people. They're settled, they're civilized, they're not like these Huns in Europe who are always on the rampage, they're always on the, on the move, they're always traveling, and they're filthy and don't bathe. But that doesn't mean they were, were not white. That only means they were rampaging rednecks, in my opinion. In contrast to the serious history of Procopius, the statements by Jordanes in his History of the Gods, which he makes concerning the Huns, must be discounted because he gives them a fabulous origin in addition to his own clear bias. In chapter 24 of his Getica, Jordanus states, 
But after a short space of time, as Orosius relates, the race of the Huns, fiercer than ferocity itself, flamed forth against the gods. We learn from old traditions that their origin was as follows. Philomer, king of the gods, son of Gadaric the Great, who was fit in succession to hold the rule of the Gede after their departure from the island of Scansa, and who, as we have said, entered the land of Scythia with his tribe, found among his people certain witches, whom he called in his native tongue, Halirune. Suspecting these women, he expelled them from the midst of his race and compelled them to wander in solitary exile afar from his army. There, the unclean spirits who beheld them as they wandered through the wilderness bestowed their embraces upon them and begat this savage race, meaning the Huns, which dwelt at first in the swamps, a stunted, foul, and puny tribe, scarcely human, having no language save one which bore but slight resemblance to human speech. Such was the descent of the Huns who came to the country of the gods. However, even in this fantastic tale, which we really must discredit, even Jordanus admits some degree of relationship between the Goths and the Huns, even though he hates them because the Huns had held the Goths tributary. If Procopius can give us so much information about the Huns, who he must have been familiar with from his own career as a soldier and a member of Justinian's court, and also give us very much information concerning the Germans, describing the Goths, the Vandals, the Alemanni, the Burgundians, the Suebi, and other German tribes. And Procopius never confuses them with the Huns, as we shall see that all of these German tribes were also named by, as we have seen, I'm sorry, that all of these German tribes were also named by many other earlier historians, and none of them were confused with the Huns. Then no matter what we may think of the Huns themselves, it is disgraceful for the English and others of recent times to label the Germans as Huns. It is especially disgraceful of the British Israel adherents to have done this because of all Englishmen, they themselves should have known better. Rather, they were whores for the Jews, and to this day they remain whores for the Jews, repeating propaganda about the German people, which suits the Jews. While much more may be, said, may be said concerning the movements of Germanic tribes during the final centuries of the Roman Empire, here we shall focus on Britain. Turning to the English church historian, Bede, and I know that a lot of British people today don't really like Bede, but he did very well in certain aspects of his history. Bede wrote his ecclesiastical history of the English nation 
in the 8th century AD, Bede wrote of the Franks and Saxons looting and pillaging the British seacoast as early as the reign of the Emperor Diocletian, which is towards the end of the 3rd century. After Rome lost control of Britain, first by a revolt of her own soldiers, for a short time the nation was ruled by various military tyrants. Later, the British came under the constant siege of the Scots and the Picts. Throughout his work, Bede called all of the Irish by the name Scots. And he also said, and as Geoffrey of Monmouth and other British historians attest, that the Picts had come from Scythia, meaning from Germany. Rome no longer being in any position to aid the Britons, who had made numerous appeals for help. Finally, a British king in the reign of the emperor Marcion, who dates to the beginning, as beginning in, I'm sorry, the 449th year of the incarnation of our Lord. In the reign of the emperor Marcion, the British invited the English or Saxons as Bede calls them, into Britain. The Latin term Bede used is Anglorum Sive Saxonum Gens, the race of the English or the Angles or Saxons. They're not called Angles and Saxons. They're called Angles or Saxons. In other words, they could be Angles. That's their tribal name, as we've seen from Tacitus, or they could be Saxons. Tacitus didn't use the term Saxons as a blanket term for the Germans. Rather, he used the term Swebi as a blanket term. Bede says of the Saxons that being sent for the said king into Britain, landed there in three long ships, and by the same king's commandment is appointed to abide in the east part of the island, as to defend the country like friends. But indeed, as it proved afterwards, as minded to conquer it as enemies. Bede goes on to describe how these first Saxons in Britain, after defeating certain enemies of the Britons in a battle, and noticing the cowardice of the Britons themselves, that's probably a biased opinion, sent word back to Germany and were soon joined by many more of their kinsmen. Bede then explains, Now the strangers had come from three of the more mighty nations in Germany, that is, the Saxons, the Angles, and the Jutes, J-U-T, Es. Of the Jutes came the people of Kent and the settlers in White. That is the folk that hold the Isle of White, and they which in the province of the West Saxons, Wessex, are called unto this day the nation of the Jutes, right over against the Isle of White. Of the Saxons, that is, of that region, which is now called of the Old Saxons. 
That's a reference to modern Saxony in Germany. Descended the East Saxons, and their county became known as Essex. And the South Saxons, or Sussex, and the West Saxons, or Wessex, and we won't comment on what the name of the county would have been if there had been North Saxons. Saxons of those parts of England, now known as Essex, Wessex, and Sussex. Further, of the Angles, that is, of that country, which is called Angeln, which is modern Schleswig-Holstein in Germany. And from that time to this is said to stand deserted between the provinces of the Jutes, which is Jutland, which is a part of Denmark on the mainland, and the Saxons, or Saxony, descended the East Angles, the Uplandish Angles, the Mercians, and all the progeny of the Northumbrians, that is, of that people that inhabits the north side of the Flood of Humber, or the River Humber, and the other nations of the Angles. B goes on to relate the story of the Saxon kings, Hengist and Horsa, and mentions their descent from Woden, or Odin, of whose issue the royal house of many provinces had their original. And let me say that the Saxon Chronicles, translated by Sharon Turner, around 1870, they were published. They do support and corroborate everything Bede said here, even of the ancient English kings who claimed descent from Odin. Odin, it can be told from the Saxon Chronicles, was an actual king who probably lived around the middle of the 3rd century AD, I believe it was, as Sharon Turner had, um, had translated, recorded, and reckoned it. Later in his history, Bede discusses a certain English preacher named Egbert, who made missionary journeys to the continent. And Bede says that he, by preaching of the gospel to bring the word of God to some of those nations which had not yet heard it, and many such countries he knew to be in Germany, of whom the English, or Angli, the English, or Saxons, which now inhabit Britain, are well known to have had beginning and offspring, whereby it is that to this day they are corruptly called garments by the Bretons that are their neighbors. Such now are the Frisans, the Frisans are the Frisians, they're called Frisi by Tacitus, the Rugans, who are called Rugi by Tacitus, the Danes, Huns, Old Saxons, and Bruchtoirs, or Bructeri in Tacitus. And there it is evident that not only does Bede count the Angles themselves as Saxons, once again stating English or Saxons, but he refers to the Saxons of Germany as Old Saxons. It is also attested that the original Bretons knew that these new inhabitants of Britain were Germans and called them 
Garmans instead, or G-A-R-M-A-N-S, maybe Jarmans. Bede Saxons must be those same tribes who, along with the Angli, Tacitus had described as Swebi. And while a district in Germany, which was once inhabited by the Angli and British Israel, that those clowns, basically, love to try to take advantage of this to convince us that all of the Angles picked up and moved to, moved to Britain. And that's a lie. It's, a very, it's an, a very oversimplified lie. We will prove here that there were plenty of Angles left in Germany after the English went to Britain, after these Saxons went to Britain. Bede Saxons must be those same tribes who, along with the Angli, Tacitus had described as Swebi. And while a district in Germany, which was once inhabited by Angli, evidently remained vacant for some time after they moved to Britain, as Bede tells us. Indeed, not all of the Angli on the continent moved to Britain. And we shall see that shortly and explicitly from the history of Procopius. That Saxon is a general name for a group of German tribes is also evident with Bede, since while he calls them by this name generally, aside from the Angli, he also refers to other individual tribes among the Saxons who settled in Britain. And he names the Goisses, who he says are the West Saxons, the Griwas, and the Huicas, and the Mianwares. And this is in several portions of ecclesiastical history. It's kind of scattered. Procopius had mentioned little of Britain. But that's quite understandable, since Britain was not within the scope of his intended subject. Yet being the personal secretary of Belisarius, the great Byzantine general who won many battles against the Germanic tribes during the reign of Justinian, he had the opportunity to witness and record many things, which indeed he did in his history of the wars. Now, Procopius's history of the wars describes the wars of the Byzantine Romans against the Persians against the Goths of Italy under their kings Vitigas and Totila, and against the Vandals in Africa under their king Gelimer. And in his Anecdota, or Secret History, where he also mentions a lot of these peoples, and that is a scathing criticism of the Emperor Justinian and his wife. On those occasions, where Procopius does mention Britain, he supports the accounts given by Bede. He describes how the Roman soldiers of Britain first revolted from the empire, which happened about 407 AD, and how Britain was never recovered by Rome, but it remained from that time on under tyrants. The same thing Bede says. At one point, Belisarius, negotiating with the Goths who invaded Italy, offered to permit the Goths to have the whole of Britain in return for giving up Sicily, even though the empire did not even possess Britain at that time. 
Belisarius was bargaining with something he didn't control. Procopius does not mention the Saxon invasions of Britain, but referring to his own time, he only says that it was inhabited by barbarians. And that's in the Secret History, chapter 19. Procopius described an island, Thule. We know the name from the much more ancient Pythias, right? He describes it as exceedingly large, more than ten times greater than Britain. And it lies far distant from it toward the north. And let me say that just because Procopius says that this island is Thule doesn't really mean that it's the same Thule that Pythias was describing. That's simply not true. On this island, the land is for the most part barren, but in the inhabited country, 13 very numerous nations are settled, and there are kings over each nation. Naming some of the tribes of Thule, Procopius relates fantastic stories about some of them, as the Greek writers always heard and recorded such tales about the people who lived on the fringes of their own world. It was very common. An earlier version of that is the one-eyed Aramaspians. Yet Procopius also spoke of the Aruli, or Haruli, a tribe which had apparently adopted the Aryan form of Christianity. He records that many men of this tribe had fought for the Romans, and Procopius must have been quite familiar with them. So we have Christians on tool in the 6th century AD, right? He describes how a great number of this tribe, after losing a fight with the Lombards, had left Germany to settle in Thule, or maybe it should be pronounced Thule, I'm, I'm not sure, T-H-U-L-E. While there is much speculation concerning Thule, from the time of Pythias, who seems to have been the first to record the name as that of a place in the northern ocean, here Procopius certainly seems to be describing Norway. Later, in the 8th through the 11th century, parts of Britain were invaded and settled by Norsemen and Danes. Procopius describes another island, which he calls Britia, but which is certainly not Britain, and which is, quote, towards the rear of Gaul, that side namely which faces the ocean, being, that is, to the north of both Spain and Britain. Now, the Greeks had their bearings a little off, and that's evident in Strabo's geography in the um, northern sea, and, and they considered the east around the coast of France and Germany. They kind of considered that to be going north. So north of Britain could very easily be interpreted as east of Britain in this, in this aspect. And here, Procopius seems to be describing Denmark, which from the sea may certainly be perceived to be an island because it's separated from Gaul and, and from the western part of what we know as Germany, 
by the mouths of the Rhine and the Elbe. He then says, the island of Britia is inhabited by three very numerous nations, each one having a king over it. And the names of these nations are Angli. So we have Angles in Denmark after the Angles, or at least a portion of the Angles, had moved to Britain. Procopius is writing almost a hundred years after the Saxon invasion of Britain. And he's talking about his own time. And the names of these nations are Angli, Frisons, and Bretons, the last being named from the island itself. And so great appears to be the population of these nations that every year they emigrate thence in large companies with their women and children and go to the land of the Franks, which at that time had included large portions of both modern France and Germany. And the Franks allow them to settle in the part of their land which appears to be more deserted. And by this means, they say they are winning over the island. Thus it actually happened that not long ago, the king of the Franks, in sending some of his intimates on an embassy to the emperor Justinian in Byzantium, sent with them some of the Angli, thus seeking to establish his claim that this island was ruled by him. Such, then, are the facts relating to the island that is called Britia, which is almost certainly Denmark, modern Denmark. Now, while this may seem to be a quite obfuscated account of some of the movements of the Germanic tribes which took place in the north at the time, the Frisons of Procopius must be the Frisons of Bede, who are the Frisi of Tacitus's Germania, paragraphs 34 and 35. And the Angli of Procopius must be the Angli of Tacitus and Bede, who are the Angles. While the Frisi have the country which is named for them, Friesland, which is now a district in the north of the Netherlands. There is certainly much evidence of Angles who did not move to Britain, as we see here from Procopius, but had rather remained on the continent. Indeed, the German surnames Angler, Englert, and Engels, among others, are all surnames of the Angles in Germany. All of those people are part of the tribe of the Angles, who also gave their names to places such as Engelberg in Switzerland, Engelsberg. There are two towns in Bavaria with that name, Engelsberg. Engelskirchen, which is northeast of Cologne in Westphalia. Engelhartzel, which is in Austria. Engeloy in Norway. And Engelheim in the Rhineland. And many other similar place names. All those place names are named from the Angles, just like England. To attempt to distinguish the English Angles from all of these other Germanic Angles 
is quite ridiculous and quite dishonest. Jeffrey Obama's. We've seen these forced um, emigrations attested to by Procopius, right? Keep that in mind. Jeffrey of Monmouth, in Book 6, Chapter 10, of his Histories of the Kings of Britain, attributes the following words to the famous Saxon king, Hengist, who is depicted as speaking to Vortigern, the king of the Bretons. Now, of course, Geoffrey Monmouth is writing a couple of hundred years later. But the, the historical perspective is certainly pretty close to the actual time that these things transpired. He quotes Hengist as having said, most notable of all the kings, speaking to Vortigern, king of the Bretons, the Saxon land is our birthplace, one of the countries of Germany, and the reason of our coming is to offer our services unto thee or unto some other prince. For we have been banished from our country. We've seen in Procopius how the Angles have these forced immigrations. For we have been banished from our country, and this for none other reason than for the that the custom of our country did so demand. For such is the custom in our country that whensoever they that dwell therein do multiply too thick upon the ground, all those Germans related to these Saxons, right? The princes of the diverse provinces do meet together and bid the young men of the whole kingdom come before them. They do then cast lots and make choice of the likeliest and strongest to go forth and seek a livelihood in other lands, so as that their native country may be disburdened of its overgrown multitudes. Accordingly, owing to our country being thus overstocked with men, the princes came together and casting lots did make choice of these young men that thou seest before thee and bade them obey the custom that has been ordained of time immemorial. They did appoint, moreover, us two brethren of whom I am named Hengist and this other, Horses, to be their captains for that we were born of the family of the dukes. Wherefore, in obedience unto decrees ordained of yore, we have put to sea and under the guidance of Mercury have sought out this thy kingdom. And of course, as it is often told, eventually the Saxons under Hengist and Horsa win the land at the expense of the Bretons. In Geoffrey's view of history, there were clearly many more Saxons in Germany than those who had gone to Britain. And they were all related. Bede used Saxony as a name for Saxon Britain in his Lives of the Abbots, paragraph 19. Yet the old Saxony, which he often referred to, is today found in the modern German states of Lower Saxony and Saxony-Anhalt. Yet it may be determined from this and previous portions of this essay that the German tribes of Saxony are indeed akin to 
and of like origin with their neighbors. They are not disdained. Those are the German regions of Bavaria, Swabia, the Rhineland, Franconia, Hesse, Thuringia, along with other portions of central and southern Germany, along with the German Germanic peoples of Austria and Switzerland in the south, the German regions in Italy, primarily Lombardy and the Tyrol, and also with those Germans in Pomerania, Brandenburg, really all the way to Ukraine. The former states of Prussia to the east. Likewise, the Scandinavian peoples, the Picts of Scotland, and other tribes of the original Bretons, such as the Kimri and the Germanic people of France, Belgium, and the Netherlands, are all akin to both Anglo-Saxons and Germans. If we disconnect them from the original Celts, who they are also all related to, only slightly more remotely, all of these are basically the exact same peoples. While the Slavic peoples pressed upon the German tribes from the east, and there are Slavs found among the Germans of today, there is no doubt. Through the practice of slavery, the mercantile trade, and by other means, people of Slavic lineage also exist among the English. There were tens of thousands of Slavic slaves brought to England by the Norsemen. It's a fact of history. Their blood is still among the English today. And the point of this is to demonstrate that the English are no special people compared to the Germans or the Franks and the other Germanic tribes of Europe. They're no different. They all have a composite makeup from the Proto-Celts, meaning the Phoenicians and Trojans and Gepetite tribes, who were there first, and then the Scythian tribes, who we call Germans, and then an element of the Sarmatian tribes, who we call Slavs, who can all be traced back to the Genesis 10 nations. But the, the English are not as special as these British Israel clowns, and as those Englishmen with a political agenda attempt to make themselves. They're no different than the Germans and the Franks across the channel. And while the English in the early, in the early 1900s slandered the Germans with the name of Huns, it is not at all true that the Germans are Huns, although both groups certainly descended from the same Scythians. Rather, the English themselves are Germans indeed, and no amount of propaganda, which really emanates from the devious minds of the international Jews in England, no amount of propaganda can ever separate the Englishmen from the German blood, which shall forever flow through his veins. Those Englishmen who deny their own heritage and their own origin are indeed guilty of hating their own brethren. There's no doubt. He who hates his brother is a murderer. For among the Saxon chronicles of the ancient English kings are found many of the same ancient Germanic poems, such as the Voluspa, which are known to have been sung among Norsemen 
Englishmen and Germans alike in the most ancient times. This concludes our series of essays entitled Classical Records and German Origins. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh and good night.